SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing Show 70 with guest Aaron Bertrand. Today is Aaron Bertrand. Aaron is a product evangelist at Century One with industry experience dating back to classic ASP and SQL Server 6.5. He's editor in chief of the Century One team blog at blogs.century1.com and the performance related blog at sqlperformance.com. He serves as a moderator for QA sites at answers.sqlperformance.com and dbastackexchange.com. And Aaron speaks frequently at user group events, SQL Saturdays, and major conferences worldwide. So welcome, Aaron. Thank you, Greg. How are you this morning? Yeah, awesome. Tell people a little bit about your current role. All right. So I uh, I have a lot of uh, public visibility, so I blog a lot, and I speak a lot at, uh, at different shows uh, around the country and around the world. And uh, I demo our products quite a bit, and I answer questions about how to use our software to make uh, SQL Server and everything else up and down the Microsoft stack perform better. Mm, awesome. And listen, so this has been a big news week for SQL Server, actually, which we had planned the podcast prior, but it, it turned out to have a, an awful lot of big news things this week. The The main two, I suppose, first up, uh, well, is SQL Server on Linux uh, going into into public preview. Yeah, that was, uh, that was pretty exciting. So... I, as you know, a lot of us knew about this beforehand, and uh, we knew it was coming. And then they made the announcement when back in March, I guess March mm, or March yeah, or April. So, yeah. They first they first made it public that something was coming, and everybody thought, oh, this will be like two years in the making. And uh, sure enough, you know, f- well, I can't tell you exactly when, but mm. uh, I had it running up on my on my own laptop in my own dev environment. Uh, Pretty close to the time they made that announcement. Yeah. So, I mean, th- this was this is something they got up, ramped up very quickly, and uh, it just works. Like everything, almost everything that you would do against a normal database engine on a Windows server, just works against Linux. Yeah. Like, it, I was totally surprised that everything worked out of the box. But um, yeah, I, I think they've done a phenomenal job, and uh, this stuff coming out into public preview this week is. It, it, it's stuff that people can just mm. install and use right away. Yeah, look, I, I really see this now as a very different Microsoft to uh, one that we've sort of seen in the past. And, uh, in fact, when um, they started talking about this, I was at a conference a, a year or so ago, and uh, one of the, I won't say who, but one of the, the product group people was saying, you know, they, they tended to have uh, builds of this going on and off for years and years into the past. Um, is that somebody would just keep every now and then saying, "Hey, we should we should do this," um, right. but it's a it's a sort of a change in the company now to suddenly go, "Let's do this." Right, and they, this time they actually did it, and you can see this coming up in all sorts of other areas too. Like go step outside of SQL Server. Look at Visual Studio for the Mac. Yeah, announced this week. 
Visual Studio Code running on uh, Mac and Linux. You've got all. The, you've got the development stack now going to all the platforms too. And Microsoft is finally realizing that uh, you know their strategy in the past, which was uh, sell Windows because you sell Office, or sell Office because mm -hmm. you sell Windows. You have this very closed environment where you're relying on the strength of the operating system to sell the products and vice versa. And now they're realizing, well, if we can sell a whole bunch of SQL Server that doesn't have to be tied to selling Windows, let's do it. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I, I had thought that probably one of the best examples of that was in the Power BI area. Um, if you look at the visualizations that are available in Power BI, I mean, there's a fairly good set that, that are in there. But what they've done is they've also taken all the code for all the visualizations. Uh, it was all built in TypeScript. Uh, and they've basically just pushed it all up into GitHub. And so if you don't like how that chart works, I mean, it's not a case of just you can build your own. Is you can start with the one that's already there. And, right. and go off and modify it and, and so on. And you can contribute all of your own visualizations and so on. That, that's a very different Microsoft to, to what we've seen in the past. Yeah, and some of the benefits that they're seeing now, which I'm, I'm sure weren't intended, but, uh, for example, I wrote a blog post this week about uh, putting a Docker machine or a Docker image uh, container on my Mac and running SQL Server there and connecting to it from Visual Studio Code on my Mac, so there's no Windows involved, and that, obviously that's not Microsoft's intention is to have me yeah. develop without, you know, having this goal to not develop with Windows. But I was up with a Docker container running in about 40 seconds, mm. whereas with a virtual machine where I'm installing Windows and then installing SQL Server, I'm minutes to an hour before I can write. A single store procedure, yeah. and I was I was literally within a minute. My container was up and running, and I was connected from Visual Studio Code, and I was starting to type queries against a database instance that had just started up. And because this container is pre-configured with SQL Server running on it, there's nothing to do. Actually, you the, literally press run and, and it's up and going. Getting up and going fast is really important as well. Um, the one I've had a well, you would know, but I've had a sort of a long running uh, battle for the last year or so where I've, I've really been trying to get the product group to re-engage more in the development community and and I see a number of things that are needed for that and the very first one was uh, stop making it hard to get hold of SQL Server in the first place um, right. and they've made good strides with that so the uh, we've now got the free version of SQL Server Developer Edition, which which I think was sensible anyway, because, I mean, they were getting very little revenue out of it. Um, but, for example, here in Australia, they were pushing it through all the license vendors, and none of the license vendors wanted to know about it because it, it cost next to nothing. Uh, and, right. and similarly, and, and, oh, sorry, because of that, um, none of them knew anything about it either. So so the thing is, so I, I had a friend who worked for Microsoft in... Uh, in Singapore, and he'd sort of come back to Australia. He tried to get a hold of Developer Edition. Literally two weeks later, he still couldn't work out how to buy it. Um, you know, we, we just cannot have that sort of situation. Uh, and interestingly, by comparison, he then went off, got Postgres, and was running it 15 minutes later. Right. And, and, and so th this is the direct comparison of the things that we need to do. So I'm, I'm pleased that it's now a free thing. You still have to jump through a few hoops 
to, to get to the point where it's downloaded, you've got to join a program and things. It's not too bad, but but I'd actually like to see that still even much faster. Yeah, I, I envision that at some point they'll realize that the, that barrier doesn't buy them anything, mm. right? So you have to go in and register for this Visual Studio program or whatever it is. The developer edition, I think, should just be uh, on the Express download page. Mm. You should be able to just download a single ISO from there, and just like what happens when you uh, when you download, what is it, MSDN? Which mm. one is it? When you when you go in through setup, it says choose your free edition yeah. or enter a license key. Yeah. And so why isn't the Express SKU? Why doesn't that just offer the ability to download whatever the entire code base, right? Yes. And you can either enter your choose your free edition, Express or Developer, or evaluation if you want to evaluate Enterprise, yep. and then or enter your product key. Like the, it, they have these separate uh, SKUs where setup is just slightly different. Mm. I don't think that's necessary because I can't imagine. It, obviously, they get an email address or uh, your live account or whatever you use to register for the Visual Studio thing, yeah. but. Are they really making revenue off of mail they're sending to that whatever account you registered with? Mm -hmm. I can't imagine. Yeah. So uh, anyway, so, yeah, I think I, I would like to see that get even faster uh, because, again, we are sort of competing in a market where there are alternatives that are fast, and, and I think that's that's super important. The, right. um, the, the second thing, um, uh, there's an, an, a number of things, but I think also more of an mm -hmm. outreach in terms of features uh, in around the de the developer areas, the uh, I think there's been a big focus for many many years on more back end high availability and so on, which is super important stuff. Um, but to me, I, I think unless there are people building new applications, uh, you, you get to a point where it won't matter how good the high availability story is. The we have to have the funnel of applications coming in really fast. Uh, yeah, and as an ISV, obviously, we're very interested in having availability of all the features and not having to worry about uh, coding for a specific feature in case some of our customers don't have that edition mm. that, that, that supports the, that feature. The, right? the wonderful announcement in amongst that uh, this week, of course, being the uh, consistent programming surface area. And right. uh, th this is one, obviously, was very dear to my heart. Uh, uh, I managed to get to try that a, a couple of months ago, and it's been very, very hard not to say anything. Uh, it was like a super deep NDA sort of thing. Um, but, but yeah, uh, I was, I was in the same, I was in the same program as you. There were, I think, there were three of us. Yeah, yeah, I think they said four. Yeah, so, so oh, were something like that. Yeah, but, I, but that's right. It, three, it was, so. uh, it was a very hush hush thing. And, but, but to me, this is super important because I spend so much of my time in software houses and they simply don't want to write code that targets a specific edition and right. it's a lot of people say oh you just put a switch in for this a switch in for that it's just not that easy it's a it's no a, it, it complicates the code base quite a bit yeah and even worse than that even it, let's say so this is this is a situation we really faced so we have a customer that wanted to use compression right mm. and so they said well can you just you know put something in there that says if you're you're installing uh, the Century One database on an Enterprise Edition server, you apply compression, and if you're not, you don't. Mm. And we're like, ah, yeah, I mean, I guess we could do that, and it wouldn't be that hard. And then they said, oh, and we need to be able to undo it in case we want to migrate that database to Standard Edition. And we're like, hold the phone, we're not <laughs> it, we're not doing that. Like that, it, it gets to a point where 
you know, writing the switches are one thing, but then being able to revert is a completely different thing. Yeah, and look... Right? Because you can't just take a backup and restore no, it on, no, no, on standard, exactly. right? So In fact, that's one thing that I, I didn't like in SQL Server 2016, is that if I built uh, temporal tables using the developer edition, uh, because the developer edition supported data compression, it the archive table is automatically data compressed, uh, is uh, page compressed, and right, that means that and you so you couldn't put you, temporal tables onto another edition, yeah, you, because you it didn't support this hidden thing that you didn't know SQL Server that's did. Right. So you, you couldn't build a database <laughs> using developer edition and then deploy it to standard uh, w without right. going through the you know scripted deployment process and so on. And and right. I my that, biggest thing was oh go ahead. Yeah, Sorry. I was going to say I, I, that was a sort of subtle change that I, I I wasn't particularly keen on the idea that a feature got in sort of auto-inserted at the back end uh, that, that changed where you could deploy it to. Right. And, uh, and nobody's running that persisted SKU features DMV every day to see if Microsoft has done anything like this behind your back. Yeah. Right. So uh, my favorite thing was, or my least favorite thing was always encrypted. Mm. I couldn't believe that they had come up with this fantastic encryption solution that finally protected data on disk, in memory, on the network, on the client. It was protected everywhere. Mm. You could protect it from the DBA even, which you can't do with TDE or any right. of the other solutions, right? So you have, all, you have this fantastic security thing that finally could put an end to this, to all of these data leaks and things that happen at various uh, layers of your application. And then they made it enterprise only. Yeah. And it was like, okay, and that's when I got really vocal about this. And I don't know if you saw any of my rants in the yeah. in the DL, but uh, like a security feature, basically the the message I got from that was that if you're a small business, well, you don't get to, you know, you probably don't need to encrypt your credit cards. You can yeah. just put that there. My problem was the small business, just like compression, uh, people who, and uh, buffer pool extensions, the customers that can't afford to go and buy SSDs and go and have super fast disks and, and big arrays that can handle a lot of IO and can, you know, can't afford to have very good firewalls and good security people on staff and all of that. They're the very people who need those features the most. Yeah. Yeah. You, you can't have it. Look, it's, I heard it put very well the other day where, where Travis uh, the, uh, from the product group was saying, you know, basically that, they're promoting the product as the the most secure database platform out there. You know, if you're doing that, you can't then have security as an option in certain features, uh, in certain right. regions. Right, an expensive option. Yes, yeah, and so that, that's an. And look, it it used to be the same argument we had with Visual Studio team. Uh, for example, testing was only in the the top end SKU, and you go, well, hang on, you know, like a even a student should be learning testing. You know what I mean? Like that, that that's exactly the uh, the opposite message to to what you want to send, and so yeah. So look at that that uh, the consistent programming surface for those that haven't had a look at it, it really changes the game completely in so many things uh, that we can just now write code and, and know that it, it's going to run across the different editions. Um, yeah, I I see an uptick in both 2016 sales yeah, and 2016 uh, proof of concepts. Right, people people writing stuff because now they don't have to sit there and look at some chart somewhere that says, "Well, can I use this?" 
feature. Yes, you can, because now you can use all features, right? Yeah. All the features you code for, anyway. There are, there are obviously some features that aren't available across mm. all editions, but not I, the ones I think, yeah, it's super important, though, because it, it's a bit like I remember having a discussion when they had the MSDE, and we were talking about the fact that reporting services wasn't there. And uh, you kept getting this sort of response saying, oh, yeah, yeah, but it's a free edition. But but I remember saying at the time, you know, the, the thing is, somebody writing applications is not going to write reports one way for one edition and write them a different way for a different edition. They're, they're just going to use a different reporting solution. Right. A, a, end of story. So the thing is, you really have to have a story. Uh, the, the other thing with that is the... Uh, I think also you need to have an upgrade story for every edition every time it is the other thing and so and one of the problems we've had also over the uh, last couple of years has been that if someone's on standard edition the question is what is the compelling reason for them to upgrade right and yeah and and for several versions there wasn't one. yeah there, there really wasn't a compelling story of very very minor sort of differences and so the now the the difference is that the things that get added into the product will be there and usable uh, look we also got some really nice language enhancements uh, in amongst this week as well uh, yeah so creator alter that's something that we've been asking for forever yeah I think uh, if you look at the list of to... top items creator alter has been pretty much on the top of the list yes. for as long as we can remember. Yeah, it's uh, pretty high up there. And I, you know, as soon as I heard that that was in there, I tested it, played with it. And uh, there's one issue with DDL triggers. If you have a DDL trigger and you run a creator alter, it works. If you run the creator alter again, it fails. Mm. Uh, but for uh, normal for database level uh, triggers, views, procedures, and functions, uh, it works exactly like you would expect. Yeah. You don't have to. You know, you don't have to write these separate codes mm. where you, or uh, pieces of code where you have logic that says if it exists, then you know create it. Or uh, the th I couldn't stand this thing that people use as a workaround where they uh, they test if the, if a procedure doesn't it, uh, doesn't exist yet, and if that returns true, so the procedure isn't mm. there yet, they write this empty stub uh, yeah. shell, this stub yeah. with dynamic SQL, so it doesn't fail parsing, where they say create procedure DDO bot whatever. And uh, and then they have an alter script after that, yes. and that's just that's just too much maintenance and hokey yeah. voodoo going on in that in that top portion of that script, and it always just made me shiver. And I kept banging on the drums mm. like, just give us creator alter. Yeah. We only need it for modules. The the big concern was well for tables that's that gets very complicated. Oh yeah, it, it's, we it's don't need, too hard. We don't need it for tables. It's too hard. We just need it for scriptable things. Actually, the one right? the one that is still a pain point for me is schemas. Um, because I still have to use dynamic code to create schemas because a create schema has to be the first statement in the batch. The, right. um, and the, at the moment, there's just no way around that. But the thing that's uh, interesting with that one is that alter schema has different semantics. It, you know, it, Unlike altering the other objects, you're not replacing it with a different version. Alter schema is used to transfer objects and things like that. So... So, right. so they couldn't really It's a mechanical thing, not a not a metadata. Yeah, so they, they couldn't really do a create or alter with schema. I, I kinda get why that's there. Um where the discussion now is that maybe it needs like a create if not exists or something like that. Um right. because I often have scripts where I've got objects in a whole lot of different scripts, 
but they'll be schema bound. But the thing is, you know, I don't know which script is going to be run first, and the only reason it would matter is is whether the schema is there or not. And so, so I often want to have a thing at the top of the script that just says, "Look, create the schemas if they're not there." Right, and you can't do it the other way. So they added drop if exists, right? But you can't do that with a schema because <coughs> if there's anything in the schema. You can't drop it. Yes, correct. So you, it's the, like you can't write your script to insulate against that scenario either. No. Actually, the, the drop if exists, uh, I, I've actually started to use that quite a bit. Uh, the only one, again, there that I have a problem with is uh, drop database if exists, uh, which seems completely pointless. Um, because basically, if anybody is connected to the database, it fails. And so right. <laughs> the first thing you have to do is disconnect anybody, and the first thing you'd have to do is check if it exists uh, before right. you could go off and disconnect anybody. So it's, it's sort of like, um, <laughs> you know, so, so that one yeah, seems I completely pointless. I, I think for some of these language changes, unless there's something really obvious at the forefront, they, they just apply it to whatever entities they think that people would want yes. and whatever entities they that will be easy to implement. So I think they probably just had a checkbox there and said, okay, let's support it for uh, drop database too, yeah. and didn't didn't have those implications mm. in mind really until probably after the language was there and then they tested it and they probably didn't realize mm. until then that there was some there were some logic issues there. It, it's actually a super important one for me because I often have scripts that just simply recreate some utility database or something like that. Uh, and, and I, I need to reliably drop the database. And it turns out that's actually not easy to do. Um, I, I've had like lots of attempts at this. If you look at books online, it suggests that you check to see if the database exists. And if it does, you do an alter database uh, set single user with rollback immediate. And then you do right. drop the database. But the problem is you have to do that from in master. And, and so you aren't necessarily the single user. <laughs> and and so right, I, I've right. had scenarios where maybe two times every couple of hundred executions that just fails, uh, and and ironically the thing that tends to do me in is the IntelliSense system in Management Studio, um, because yep. I'll have a script that then says create the database and so on, and it's literally running off and checking the objects later in the script. And, and it becomes the single user that stops the, the drop yep. working. Yeah, so it's a, and so I just said, hey, you know, we, we need to have a way of just reliably dropping a database. So I, I think all they need to do is they need to add with drop immediate uh, or with rollback immediate to the drop database if exists statement. Uh, yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, drop, drop, and it should be on drop database even without if exists. Yes. Drop, drop database, database with kick everyone out. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the UI, and I'm not suggesting anybody should use the UI to drop a database, but there's a checkbox there that says kick everybody out. Yeah. <laughs> and that seems to be a natural extension to the syntax. If that's how you're, you're designing your UI to say this is, this is what this command can do, mm. and it has this option, well, why doesn't the syntax have that option? Yes, actually, I found a problem with that one, too, in that... I, I scripted that out instead of executing it to see how it did it, and it didn't actually script out the drop. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> All it did was script out the kick the out drop. the users? Yeah. No, it scripted out the drop the database, sorry, but it didn't It didn't script out the kick, sorry, it didn't kick out the users. It didn't script out oh, that. Oh, I see. And okay. so, okay. so I reported that one too. Hopefully that's fixed now. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. So, yeah, but look, overall, look, it was a really wonderful grab bag of things that, uh, I think appeared in this week, and so yeah, yeah, that that's it's actually been a really really good story week. I think from 
Um, there, there still are a number of other things I have in my list, I think, in terms of re-engaging with the developers, but, uh, but, but these have been very, very big uh, things, you know, uh, heading, heading, starting to head down that path. I, I would love a few other things, like, uh, for example, if I go and play around with, say, DocumentDB, I, I can go and try a whole lot of things without even installing DocumentDB. So, I mean, they have like a sandbox that you can connect to with a, a bunch of preloaded data, and you can just go to a website and type in queries and run them and see what happens, you know? Like, and yeah. it's just interesting that that product's been around less than a year, and and yet for the whole period we've had SQL Server, we have nothing like that. Um, and so I, I would love a, uh, a thing where they had preloaded originally AdventureWorks and now Worldwide Importers or whatever, just preloaded into a web page where you could just go and type queries and learn basic T-SQL and, and just try things. Yeah, and there, so there are a couple of services that do that. One of them is uh, SQL Fiddle. Hmm. SQL Fiddle has, they just, when you log in and you, or, or you don't even have to log in, but when you go to the site, you enter... Uh, you select what database engine you want from a dropdown, and they have a bunch. They have MySQL, they have uh, Oracle, they've got two different versions of SQL Server, nice. and you just pick your your instance from there, and uh, it it fires up an instance of Express or a user instance of Express mm -hmm. and connects you to it, and you can just go and run and create queries, and there's some limitations on what you can mm -hmm. do, but uh, that's really useful for Q&A sites where you're trying to repro a problem. Yeah. You want to show someone exactly the steps that you could, that you took to either come across the problem or mm -hmm. to solve it. And so you can go in there and you can create your tables and you can do all of that. And someone doesn't have to have uh, SQL Server installed to have to, uh, to show it. the problem or or to uh, see the problem or or to mm. solve the problem. Oh, and importantly, they don't have to have that particular build or, or right, the, true, the, true. the one where you can actually demonstrate the problem because that's right. They might have it, but they might not be able to see the problem. So, yeah, there were actually a couple of times where I was answering questions on Stack Exchange, and I would run some piece of code on. Uh, on my local 2016, and I only had 2016 installed or mm. 2014 or whatever it was at the time, and I would report back to them and say, "Well, I can't reproduce your problem because it works fine." That's right, it, it and works it, fine. it turns out they were they were running 2000 or 2005 <laughs> or something, and you know some bug that had been fixed in the 10 years in between yeah. uh, that I wasn't aware, you know, of the exact version they were using. Mm. So it is challenging sometimes because you have to remind people, "Tell us what version you're yeah, using." Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you know, absolutely. You know, if I try to reproduce on a different version, I'm not necessarily going to see what you see. So. Yeah, I think, and uh, there's uh, the other thing that I, I'd love to see pushed in this area is I'd like to see a, a different marketing approach around uh, Azure SQL DB as well. Um, I, I know that all of the the main business has come from on-premises people moving across to that, but I look in the new world order and. In, in the new cloud-first world order, all that matters is how good is that as a platform by itself. Uh, and, and I'd love to see a much bigger developer outreach saying, look, if you're looking at building a new application, this is an awesome platform to build on. Um, you know, rather than, much of it at the moment seems to be a discussion about what's in the on-premises one and what's missing or, or what's different in the, in the uh, cloud-based one. But but I'd just love to see a completely fresh discussion that just promotes the cloud one directly. Yeah, and something that I've noticed is, or that we've all noticed really, is the differences between the on-premises version and the cloud version are really going away. Yes, there isn't much left that differentiates. There are a couple of things, but 
there's not a lot. So if you're writing a new application, it shouldn't really matter unless you're relying on specific things like cross-server service broker or SQL Server agent. The, the Again, going back to this consistent programming surface area, the, most of that is pretty similar. Actually, what's your thought in terms of service broker? Because it's actually one of my favorite parts of the product, but of course it's it's one that, uh, you know, from the point it was released was, well, there, there was, they made it invisible nearly with no tooling and no prescriptive guidance, so it was almost like it, it didn't exist to a lot of people. Um, yet I see people endlessly rolling their own queues and things in databases and doing a very poor job of it. <laughs> and yet there's this transacted queue sitting right there in the database. But but now the fact that it isn't sitting there in Azure SQL DB and so on, uh, you know, leads people to go, well, you know, uh, I'm, I'm just not sure what the future is there. Right. Is it the next notification services? Yes, yes, exactly. And so... Yeah, so... So it's very similar to what they did with uh, extended events. Mm. So extended events has a very slow adoption. And uh, the thing that these two things have in common is when they were released, there was no UI, yes. no tooling whatsoever. Jonathan, if you remember, Jonathan Cahayas mm. wrote a an add-in for Management Studio just to show, just to expose extended events because there was zero visibility yeah. into in, you know creating sessions and, and viewing sessions and all of that. And Service Broker is the same. There's... Mm. Service Broker is a challenging one because uh, I've used Service Broker quite a bit in my career and uh, going back to 2005. And I can't envision what the UI for setting that up would look like. Actually, the thing that's interesting there is Klaus Oschenbrenner uh, had a management studio add-in that he built back in 2005 um, that visualized the mapping between messages and things and stuff. And, and, I, and I thought... Why doesn't the product have anything like that? <laughs> and and and, yeah, and, of, so, and of course the thing is they also made it difficult to add on <laughs> things. Right. Yeah, they did they did change the add-in model and mm. they did it again. They they've done it multiple times. I'm hoping that this new uh the new separate management studio that's completely yeah. uh apart from the the engine releases, I'm hoping that that add-in model with the uh uh, what is it, Visex or mm. whatever it's called? The VS, I'm hoping yeah, that VSIX is things. yeah. So oh yeah, V6, yeah. So I'm hoping that's a lot more extensible and and less problematic because the the previous ones they would change. I remember Modern mm. uh, complaining about this all the time. Like they they would oh, with ship the a CPU and, and it would completely yeah. break his add-in, right? That's and right. So that would happen a lot. But with uh, with the service broker added, I could see how you would visualize what's going on, mm. right? You can you can uh, have some kind of pipeline that shows how many messages are going to the yep. to the queue and how big they are and that kind of thing. But I mean a UI for setting it up mm. and saying this is what I want my queue to do and this is what I want the messages to yep. look like. I, I have a hard time envisioning what a generic UI to do that would look mm. like because every solution is so specific to what you're doing. I had um, heard that in uh, late 2006, 2007 or something, it was actually outsourced to uh, a development team to build a UI for that, and what came back was basically unusable. Um, yeah. And it was interesting that prior to 2008, uh, oh, a few months prior, the, one of the events I was at, there were a couple of guys running around saying they were going to start trying to build a UI and what did we want to see in it. And so I knew at that stage it wasn't going to be in 2008 So because that, <laughs> <laughs> that was only a few months away. But, but yeah, and, and again, they seem to have disappeared into the ether again, those, those people. So uh, Yeah, it's been 10 years mm, and we, don't, we haven't seen anything. Yeah, so, so uh, 
But and actually, it raises the the concept of add-ins because the main thing I actually wanted to talk to you today about was Plan Explorer, and uh, and of course one of the awesome things that uh, uh, your company has done is sort of turn that into a free uh, option uh, where previously it had two levels. Uh, that's true. So we had uh, Plan Explorer free, which was a, it had a certain set of functionality, which was enough for most people to analyze their execution plans and have obvious visualization, obvious clues about where the problems were. Um, and then we added some features to a pro edition and offered that for 295. And it was, uh, it had some extra things you could view sessions. Uh, so you could have a, a tuning session where you ran a query once and you got the results and then you added an index and you mm. ran the query again and your results were different. And then maybe you added a hint and then maybe you remove no lock and, and you have all these steps that you go through when you're troubleshooting a query. And when you're doing that in management studio, you don't really have, unless you hit control Z and, and go back and see what you had typed before, you don't really have a good sense of, well, what steps have I gone through mm. and which of these iterations produced the most efficient query or the most efficient plan, right? And in this, you can step back through the history and you can see exactly what you did and you can leave comments and you can pass that on to other people and share it with them and they can go back and step through what you did and review um, review what you did. So that was just that's just one of the pro features that uh, we had put into the upper tier edition. And then uh, th this year, we decided that what we wanted to do is instead of have this thing where we're, we're making money sometimes and the rest of the time we're giving it away for free it, and having this complicated code base. So just like mm. the problem that Microsoft had where, they, where ISVs were writing things and they have this, these two different code bases, right? We had to maintain these two different code bases where uh, we had to be very conscious of what edition someone was running in order to enable and disable functionality inside the UI as you're just going from tab to tab because everything's context sensitive. Uh, you're going from tab to tab and looking at things and we have to like hide and show things based on the edition. And mm. uh, that's a, that's a really selfish thing. And I don't think that was a, one of the primary uh, reasons why we did this. What we really wanted to do was, is to get plan Explorer to everybody. Yeah. And you know, we couldn't do that if we were restricting the feature set for most of the people who would use it, mm. right? So we uh, and it, when it we has added... a degree. It's always had a degree of integration with Management Studio directly, where I can right-click and say, you know, explore this or view this in Plan Explorer. Right. So we have an add-in right now that what it does is you um, you it gets installed into Management Studio, and when you it, generate an execution plan, either estimated or actual, from within SSMS, you can right-click it and say, open in Plan Explorer. Mm. Eventually, you can probably envision that we would want to actually render our solution inside of that window. Yes. I don't know when that will happen, but that seems like a natural yeah. Um, evolution. Yeah, at the uh, one of the things that I have always uh, kind of liked about it is it just simply does a better job of showing the execution plan. Um, <laughs> and and you'd sort of think, uh, I'm, I'm surprised that's an area in management studio that I, I had I've been surprised that hasn't improved. Right. And so, but so we've actually caused a change there. So that was mostly ignored since SQL Server 2000. Mm -hmm. Like I, if I open Query Analyzer and look at a plan there, uh, it's going to look almost identical to a plan that I open in 
Management Studio 2014. Yes. Not not a whole lot of difference, right? They're they're almost identical. The properties panel has mm. similar stuff in it and that kind of thing, but largely unchanged. It's, it's worth With noting this, that too is that a lot of people don't seem to be, realize the properties panel is, is even relevant to that, you know, because people look at the graphical plans and see the pop up things. But I'm always telling them, um, just just go over there and have a look in that properties <laughs> window. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and we try to make that more obvious by providing grids and, and sortable sortable grids and uh, filterable grids, and uh, you can aggregate even in our grids and things like that. So we try to do a better job of that too. Um, but one of this unintended side effect with the success of our software and how popular it's become, we're actually seeing Management Studio come up with features that kind of mimic what we've done. So they've, they've come up with better spacing algorithms and... Um, so there's less wasted space on the screen and zooming and panning and, and doing some of the things that, that we've done in the past and, and made that a better experience. So they're was realizing always, that... You know, I was always surprised well, there just wasn't an easier way to find expensive operators. Right. Yeah, and there still isn't really. No. You know, you're, still, you're still panning around and looking for that, that percentage that's most expensive. Mm. And uh, we also, just this is just a, a very simple, trivial thing that, that people maybe don't really notice or have been using Plan Explorer long enough that they take it for granted. But one of the big things we wanted to do, in addition to color, so we color the most expensive operator in red, but another thing we wanted to do is move the percentage to the top. Yeah. So what would happen is the percentage is at the bottom, and it's a small thing, but when you have... Uh, indexes, operators and indexes that have short and long names mm. and you end up with carriage returns in there and your eye darts around just enough mm. that you, that things are even less obvious to you. So we put them at the top so that they would be in a consistent, as long as you had, you know, you didn't screw up your plan and drag operators all over the place. Uh, everything was in a single line. So your eye, it, it, and again, it, this might cost you a second or two, but it's, it, just made it so much easier to go across that line and, and look at those percentages consistently instead of having your eye darting around, depending on how far the percentage got pushed down below the operator. As, as they've got more uh, complicated too, I often uh, the names are very, very difficult to, to see in most of the tools. The, um, I, I've often wondered about little things like just uh, having an option to just not show the schema and just have that part of the pop-up detail. and and so on, just just so that you get more of the name of the thing it is that you, you're looking at. Yeah, so we, the option, the, the way we went with that is to uh, to show the full name. Mm. So you, you have an option. You can show an abbreviated name or the full name. Mm. We don't have an option right now to hide the schema, but I don't know, actually, um, I can't really look right now. Mm. I don't know that we show the schema on the diagram. Yeah. I, I actually forget. Hmm. I, I know it's just one of the ones that tends to make some of them a bit long sometimes, and the uh, yeah, and so yeah, I mean just but the, I'm sure there'd be lots of little things, you know, where um, and uh, actually handling of schemas appropriately is one of the things that's never uh, gone that well in lots of parts of the product. Like I, I know even in Power BI at the moment, um, uh, in say analysis services previously, if I had uh, so I don't know some dimensions or something that I loaded up. Uh, it would 
just give me the name uh, and it would in the the thing sort of show the schema in brackets but but it would create the object based on the name but but what Power BI currently does, it puts the schema underscore the name of the thing. And, uh, you know, again, very rarely would that be what I actually want to call a dimension or something. You know, like uh, that, that typically wouldn't be what it would be. Um, right. And there's also, so they did this with uh, policy-based management. Mm. When they first came up with that, they do the same thing. And with, uh, is it change tracking change maybe? Track, they put yeah. the schema underscore. Yeah, so they have these these... Uh, oh, situations the, where they uh, do that and in um, change data capture where the instances are oh yeah right, right, underscore right. table name yeah yeah so and that works fine ninety nine percent of the time but then you occasionally have this thing where you maybe you have a schema called dbo underscore foo hmm. and then a table called bob and then you have a schema called dbo and a table called foo bob hmm. now you've got you have this conflict right because yeah. they can't they can't make a unique name out of those they're, they're both going to end up. Uh, resolving to the same name, and I pointed that out. And uh, I remember Dan Jones, who was on the PBM team, he laughed at me, and he's like, "Nobody's ever going to do that." <laughs> but Actually, I'm one, even of, looking one at, of the things I loved uh, that I noticed was fixed in a recent service pack uh, was a problem in Management Studio if your table name contained semicolon colon. <laughs> semicolon colon. Yeah. <laughs> there okay. Was some, what uh, happened? There's some parsing issue somewhere. <laughs> Oh, but, but it was just an interesting sequence in the middle of a table name. <laughs> yeah, there's one too with uh, apostrophes in a database name, I think, causes mm. some pain in Management Studio. Uh, but the, the schemas, another thing I noticed, even in, uh, I was looking at uh, documentation for StringAg, which is a new, mm. I think it was StringAg, it's a new function available in uh, CTP for VNext. one of VNets. Yes. And they don't use schemas in the script. It's like they don't understand how important mm. schemas are for various things, for for security and for identification and, yep. and classification, but for uh, even for execution plans. Mm. Two different users with two different schemas, uh, both say select star from employees, they get two different plans in the cache. Yeah. That's, that's a huge waste. And it, I just, uh, like the documentation, I think just needs to be a little bit better at following consistent best practices because mm. yeah, in something. some topics their best practices all over the place yep. and in some they're completely missing i have i have some where i i uh like find five slides from my bad habits talk that uh, on one code on sample, one sample. <laughs> in the documentation yeah, yeah that, that completely true the actually um schemas are sort of interesting and we we tend to make uh, fairly extensive use of them but more uh, m most of the time it's about grouping things for security purposes i, I think is the the, the primary situation for us. So uh, the, the most common example is if I have some sort of web application or something, I don't want to let it anywhere near the database, you know, or the normal tables or anything in any way. And what right. I will do is create a schema for that website. Uh, I'll put views and procs and things in that that uh, typically with execute as owner or something. Um, and the only permission the website will be given is select and execute on that schema. And I mean, that's the end of the story. So. Right. Yeah, we use it in our product for uh, for differentiation, just to to group uh, logical, functional mm -hmm. things. So we have an always-on schema, for example, for mm -hmm. the all the objects that maintain information about availability groups and clusters and that sort of mm -hmm. thing. So uh, we we definitely use it for uh, for functional separation, which makes things easy because when I'm if someone's going in and editing the source code or editing the the database for a new feature or a new uh, capability or something, mm -hmm. they, 
they really see where all of that stuff is. It's all contained in this in this single thing instead of everything being in DBO and named based on what it does and makes things well. Well, uh, to, to me, the, the number one indication is if I look down a list of tables and there's a whole bunch of tables that all have the same prefix. Right. <laughs> then, yeah. then somebody's obviously <laughs> trying to form a natural grouping out of those. And yeah. I just said, just that should just be a schema, you know, if if if, if that's the case, you know, the, because you're doing it anyway, <laughs> you know, you, <laughs> yeah, it, right. it just happens to be in the one spot. And so, look, yeah, getting a good look at execution plans is important. There, actually, one that I had did have a problem with a, a while ago on a site. Uh, they had named all their tables as goods, um, uh, and, and they had tens of thousands of tables. And so, like the the execution plans were basically unreadable in in any tool. You know, like a, a, right. That's just so yeah. scary. Um, uh, look, <laughs> another thing I, I have liked in uh, Plan Explorer too is the uh, that again I'm surprised hasn't appeared elsewhere much uh, is the ability to anonymize the queries. Uh, yeah, so we we do come across the occasional user that. Uh, is working in a in a company where they either the company doesn't want anybody to know what they've named their tables for security reasons, or the person doesn't want anybody to know who they work for, or uh, a variety of reasons, yeah. right? And uh, and yeah, so we um, we built the capability to anonymize everything. So we just call everything object one and schema two, and uh, nothing identifiable. And that too, like the GUIDs, it it does make troubleshooting a little difficult. And what we've found is that most of the time, probably 90% of the time, when we get someone who posts an execution plan to our site and needs help with it, uh, you know, they ask for help with the query, and the query is unreadable too because it's you know select from object one, join object two. Well, we don't know what those are and what those filters mean and what the data types are. It's really hard to to tell what what these things are and what the query is really trying to do under the covers. Mm-hmm. And we come back and ask, you know, can we get a non-anonymized version of the plan? And I usually offer, you know, if, if you don't want to post it on the site, you can just email it directly to me or, and Paul will make the same offer, that kind of thing. And 90% of the time, they just post an, a non-anonymized version of the plan. So I think that the, the actual need for that functionality is a lot less than the actual use of that functionality. And you know, I think I think people see the shiny button on the toolbar and they go, "Oh yeah, well of course I want to anonymize this." Mm. And I don't think they realize it means make my query unreadable. I think read, yeah, yeah, right. I think difficulty. Although on the other side, uh, you would have had the same experience. I've I've seen so much code posted where you just go, "There's no way you're." manager would want that posted <laughs> oh true 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 but <laughs> yeah that's true but they, i mean it, as long as when it's anonymized you can have the ugliest code in the world and your manager doesn't know you know unless he's watching that site or yeah. she is watching that site for for things to come up like that like there's no no way but i'm thinking just sometimes the anonymized. information leakage about the company what they're doing you know all the you know like the some, sometimes it's just there's just way too much of that comes comes out in code. Uh, yeah, no, that's true. Actually, in the .NET that's ones, true. it used to fascinate me all the time. Um, some of the things, like you'd see people uh, post, uh, you know, yellow screens of death out of ASP, for example, and and the beautiful thing too was that often have the the error message up and 
And what it would often be is that at night time, somebody shut down their, their server for, for whatever reason, uh, and the website has gone off and tried to connect to the SQL Server box and couldn't connect. Uh, and mm-hmm. then they haven't turned on local errors properly in the site. So, so when somebody <laughs> yeah. hits the site, what it actually sends it, you know, is here's the full dump. And oh, by the way, here's the command where I tried to connect to SQL Server with an arrow pointing to it, including often the full path, the username, the password, the, <laughs> the whole bit. And it's right there on the website. You know, it's like yes, yeah. okay, yeah. Uh, com- completely awesome stuff. So, yeah, no, I've often seen things posted where you just go, "Oh no, please, please don't post that." <laughs> you know, that, yeah, right. that, that that's not good. And what 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 else do you find are the main things that people do love in the product? So uh, this year we added index analysis, mm-hmm. which um, we're getting really good response from. What it does is when you run an execution plan or you generate an execution plan within the tool, what we do is we go and we look at all of the indexes uh, for each operation where an index was used. Mm-hmm. We go and we look at all of the indexes that are on the table, uh, that, and then we look at all of the columns and all of the stats, and we put this in a grid for you. And the purpose of the grid is to show you that the, the, the basically a score for each index mm. And so we show you the, the index that was chosen for the query, and we, gi- we give it a score based on, uh, it's an algorithm that I can't really publicize, but uh, it's based on things like how well the index covers the query, whether the, you know, any filters or, uh, or, or output, are they part of the key or are they part of the include? Are they at the leftmost part of the key? We've got an algorithm there that says, based on all of these factors, this index scores a 60%. And what you can do inside of that grid is you can make hypothetical changes to the index or add a new index or pick a different index that might have done better and see what kind of impact that the changes that you make, like let's say you you move a column from the include to the key or you swap the order mm. of the columns in the key, you can do all of that without changing the database. Mm. And we'll rerun the algorithm against that change that you made and update the score. Mm. So you can get a real-time response to saying, instead of going and creating an index and clearing the plan cache and running your query again and seeing what the results were and comparing them and if they were similar times but different plans, were they better, were they worse, you don't know, right? Mm. Uh, But if our algorithm at least tells you that your score is improving as you're making these hypothetical changes to the index, you can quickly see if you're on the right track. Yeah. Actually, it's going to be interesting going forward in... Uh, I'm wondering how far a lot of the AI techniques and things are going to start to intrude directly into these areas, and how quickly, you know, the uh, because again, you sort of look and go, well, you know, we know the sorts of things that we go through to try and deal with this stuff. Uh, you know, at at what point does that become completely automated? <laughs> I don't think it ever becomes completely automated. Mm-hmm. I think that you can... I mean, SQL Server has been doing this for ages, right? Yes. The missing indexes and things like that. So there are portions of this that I think you can automate. Mm-hmm. I think there, there are classes of problems that are very common and almost always have the same solution. Yes. And those are the kinds of things that you can automate. But people are building more complex databases mm, and writing more true. complex queries and using all kinds of different ORMs and, and all of these things to build queries that challenge SQL Server. Mm. And I think that uh, you know it, it will always be playing catch up with 
the next dumb thing that someone will mm. do <laughs> to to make a query perform poorly. And uh, and I don't mean dumb like the stupid, yeah, no, but no, 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 uh, no. you know something that SQL Server wasn't prepared for is going to come its way. And I just you know I think I think we'll chip away yeah. and we'll over time we'll cover a larger and larger percentage of those mm. things that that can be classified as the same kind of problem. Yep. Uh, but I don't think we'll ever no. hit the other end of and, the bar. And look, they're, they're always, the bar will always be moving. We all, we all have that. I mean, like, the thing is, no matter how many years you've been doing this, you know, every week I, I see something where I go, I would never have thought of that. <laughs> you know, like so, <laughs> right. some new yeah. creative way to cause a problem <laughs> you know, that, that, that I'd never seen before. <laughs> yeah, so no, no, that's the thing I love about doing consulting work is, as uh, it, it's so excellent for when you're doing speaking and training and things, because you just can't make this stuff up. <laughs> you know, like, right, you, right. You couldn't dream up some of the things that you see. And so, listen, where, yeah, I, where will oh, people ahead, see you? Uh, it's getting towards time, but I, I just thought, of, where will people see you, or what have you got coming up? That, uh... Uh, so, at the beginning of December, I am doing a pre-con and a couple of regular sessions at uh, SQL Saturday in Providence, mm-hmm. Rhode Island. Probably not a lot of people your way will be anywhere near that. Oh, yeah. Listeners all over the place. Uh, yeah. Listeners all over. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'll be there. And that's uh, that's my only re- event remaining this year. Mm-hmm. I will definitely be at SQL Intersection in the spring. Yep. Which will be in Orlando in April, mm-hmm. I believe, late April. And uh, other than that, I haven't committed to uh, to any other events. Yeah. I cut back. I had a, I've had two kids in the last mm. four years, so I've, I have two uh, young children, and so I went from eighty plus thousand miles a year four years ago to maybe thirty yeah. this year. So I've been uh, cutting back quite a bit on how many events I actually go to, mm-hmm. and I try to make the the most out of my trips. So if mm-hmm. I'm going uh, over to Europe, or if I or to the UK, or if I'm going out to the West Coast, I try to get two or three events in yeah. on that trip so that. Um, I minimize the amount of time that I'm spending away yeah. because I'm in a plane trying to get somewhere or to get home. Yeah, so I, I, I have done the same thing for the last couple of years. The, uh, in fact, um, uh, one that I am looking forward to though is uh, heading over to SQL Days in Poland in May. Oh, so I went to that last year, mm. and uh, let me tell you, that event is awesome, and you are going to feel. Um, I don't know what the right word is. They uh, they are extremely hospitable, mm-hmm. like the the. The, just everything. They take care of you. Yeah. Trust me. They take care of you. That's that's a that's a high class event, and those are some good people over there. And so, and I had, and actually, Poland itself. I was kind of nervous about how Poland would be, and if I would actually enjoy it, if it would mm-hmm. be run down. And I, I had some preconceived notions about Poland, having never mm-hmm. been there. And uh, it was phenomenal. It was a beautiful country. There are museums everywhere. We went. I went to some pretty depressing places, mm-hmm. but I. Because of the situation, not because the place was depressing. Yeah. Um, but uh, there are some beautiful things to see, and, and we got around the country no problem. We saw lots of uh, lots of sights, and, and yeah, lots of good food, and mm. we just we had a really good time. So you should enjoy. Yeah, it. we're looking forward to that. And again, the same thing. We'll uh, do a number of other related events uh, while while in the area. Yeah, for, that's right. for sure. And in fact, I'm hoping to get down to um, uh, into Zurich as well. I haven't. Uh, had, uh, oh, cool! Again, I, I haven't been there. I've lined that up in terms of timing, but uh, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, I've I've uh, laid over in Zurich. That's about mm. it. Awesome. Well, thank you so very much for your time today, Aaron. It was good to catch uh, up. No with problem. You. Thank you. Yeah, you too, Greg. 